0: The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. You can join us live Saturday nights at 6 p.m., Sunday mornings at 9, 10, 30, or 12, or you can join us online at cityrev.org. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Glad that you've joined City Rev uh, here this weekend for our services. My name is Roby. I'm one of the pastors here. And so we are in part three of our series, The Provider. And so we're going to dig into the scripture together for uh, this weekend. So glad that you've joined us. I just want to start by talking about ways to describe food. Okay, now, luckily for me in, in, in my house, my wife, Rebecca, does all. Uh, probably ninety-five percent, uh, yeah, ninety-seven percent of the cooking, but that three percent, okay, uh, man, I, I I show up on that three percent, okay, I can, I can defrost a waffle for the kids like a champion, okay, I, I can I, I can toast a bagel, okay, just the perfect light toasting on that bagel with true expertise, okay? So I do show up for that 3%. And by the way, no one is complaining in my house that my wife Rebecca is doing 97%, and I'm only doing 3 because she's an incredible cook, and um, that's the way everybody wants it. But for that 3%, I try and show up. And so I was recently uh, looking online uh, for a recipe, and I came across a recipe, and it was described like this. It said, hearty vegetable stew. Okay, now you're probably aware of this, but if you're not, I wanna help you out. If you see the word hearty, that is a code word in describing food. It's code for not good. Okay, when I see hearty vegetable stew, I can immediately pass that because what hearty means for that stew is it's just going to taste like vegetables. Okay, hearty means tastes healthy, which means tastes not good. Like if you're sitting with your buddy and you're like, dude, is that a quinoa kale salad you're eating? And he's defensive and he says, oh, no, man, it's so good. It tastes really hearty. What he means is he's trying to tell himself that he likes it, but it does not taste good. Okay, hearty is a code word for not good. Now, here's why I want to start with food descriptors, because the passage that we are looking at to help us learn about God as a provider, God provides food. That's how he's going to provide. He provides food for Israel as they're wandering through the wilderness. And we learn something by not just the fact that he's providing food, but we learn some things by how it describes the food itself that he provides. Now, here's why we're talking about this right now. Because in the midst of all of the craziness, all of the uncertainty, we have questions. If you're a person of faith, if you're a follower of Christ, or maybe say, look, I never would have thought of myself as a person of faith, but I tell you what, right now I have questions. Your questions may be something to the effect of, Okay, right now in all the uncertainty, what should I be expecting from God as far as how he's going to provide in my life? Whether it's a job, whether it's finances, whether it's health, whether it's a relational issue that all this tension is surfaced, how should I expect God to provide? And furthermore, what do I need to do to make sure he does provide? We're learning about how God provides, and in this series, one of the main things we're learning is that there is one God. There is one who never fails. I want to show you a little bit more about what it looks like for God to provide. So, if you have a Bible or Bible app, open to Exodus chapter 16. Now, let me just get you caught up on where we're at. In Exodus 16, The people of Israel, they they were in Egypt, they were enslaved, Moses shows up to Pharaoh, let my people go, there's uh, the Pharaoh resists, God shows up and there's all these plagues and finally Pharaoh relents, they leave Egypt, they get caught at the Red Sea, God parts the Red Sea, the people of Israel pass through it, the Red Sea collapses on the Egyptians, wipes out the army, they get on the other side of that and now they're beginning to wander through the wilderness And they get out into the wilderness and they look around and say, okay, this is great. We can't go back, okay? We've got the Red Sea behind us and a bunch of very angry Egyptians, so we're not going back. But all we see in front of us, it's just wilderness. It does not look good. And they look around and they say, well, for starters, we don't have any food. And they start complaining to Moses and Aaron, and specifically what they say is, if you were bringing us out here to die, why don't you just leave us, why didn't you just leave us in Egypt? At least we had food in Egypt, but here we're going to die, and we're going to die of starvation. And here's what happens next. We're going to pick it up in Exodus chapter 16. We're going to look at verse 4. Exodus 16, verse 4. Here's what it says. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them. I want you to just pay close attention to that. Remember that. That I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day when they prepare what they bring in it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Okay, here's the situation. God is about to bring uh, bread down from heaven. It's going to be all on the ground when they wake up. When the dew rises, there's going to be bread on the ground there. They eventually call it manna. It's what's known throughout of the rest of the, the Bible as manna. It's the bread that God provided. It's there on the ground. They're supposed to come out in the morning. They're to gather it, and then they're going to take it back in, and they're going to gather. God tells them specifically how much to gather. We'll see that in a moment, and they feed their families. Now, here's what he specifically says. He says, you're going to gather it every day. On the sixth day, you're going to gather twice as much. Why? Because on the seventh day is their Sabbath. That's the day that they rested, okay? And where does that come from? Because it's interesting to note, this is while they're on their way to Mount Sinai, where Moses gets the two tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments on it. And um, to remember, the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments. And so, this is before they get the Ten Commandments. God is teaching them already about the Sabbath. About how on the seventh day, the last day of the week, that they stop working, they set that day aside for the Lord, and they rest and they worship. And it is all the way anchored back to actually how Genesis 1 presents creation. God is creating in six days, and on the seventh day, he sets it aside and he rests. This is what he's calling them to do. You're going to gather manna for six days. On the sixth day, you'll gather twice as much because I don't want you to gather any on the seventh day. Now, one important thing before we continue, he says, I am testing them. God says that. I am testing my people. Now, when God is testing someone, he's not trying to figure out himself where they're at. It's not like someone in your life, you're like, I'm not sure they're trustworthy. You know, let me just kind of test out, you know, this relationship, see if there's someone I can trust. God already knows their hearts. He's not trying to figure anything out. When God is testing someone, He's revealing to them. It's a lesson for them. He already knows it. He's revealing to them where they're at specifically as far as how well they're obeying His commands. His direction. Okay. I want you to jump down with me to verse 16. We're going to pick it up and, and see how this played out a little bit more specifically. So Exodus 16, 16, it says, this is what the Lord has commanded. So remember, he's testing them how they follow his commands. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as much as he can eat. You shall take an omer, according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. An omer is like a half-gallon. So if you have uh, five people in your tent, five people in your family, you get uh, five half-gallons, five omers, okay? Okay. They're supposed to gather an omer a day for each person in their tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered, some more, some less, but when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it until till uh, leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. It's a biblical word. Stank, it's right there in the Bible. It stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. Okay. There's a lot of incredible things in here if we kind of peel back some of the layers. For starters, um, they each go out and they each gather an Omer, one for every person in in their household. They each gather an Omer and they bring it back. Some are gathering a lot, some are gathering a little, depending on who's in their house, but here is one of the amazing things is they're going out, the manna, it's all across the ground. They go out in the morning. Uh, it melts by the time the sun gets hot, so they go out in the morning, they're gathering it up. They gather for everyone for in their tents. Some have a lot of people in their tents, so they have a lot, some have little. But here's part of the, the thing that's amazing: every single person is satisfied. They, they, there is just enough for everyone, and everyone is full. That's incredible that's an incredible miracle that God is doing with this manna. But then we get to the command, and this is one of the commands that the people of Israel disobeyed. They're specifically told to not save any left over till the next day. Don't save on any for the next day. But they didn't listen. Now, Moses hadn't told them ahead of time what would happen if they disobeyed, but they saved some Some of them till the next day. By the time they woke up in the the morning, it stank, to use the biblical word. It stank. Specifically, it says it bred worms. We're talking maggots. It's rotting. Okay, this is disgusting. And it's almost miraculously quickly for it to rot to that degree that quickly. If there's maggots in it, okay, we're not talking about moldy bread. Moldy bread has one smell. But this is like think of like rotting meat. I mean, there's just some foods that when it goes bad, it really, really reeks. And the types of food that has worms and maggots in it, I mean, it smells like death. I mean, it absolutely reeks. So the next morning, everyone could tell who had not obeyed, unfortunately for them, who had not obeyed Moses and not obeyed the law, they had saved some overnight till the next day. Now, think about this with me for a second. If you're disobeying that particular law, it's revealing. Because the amount they're instructed to gather is just enough to satisfy them. It's not, that there's, it's not that they're just too full and I can't eat anymore. They're holding themselves back from eating until they're full and saving it overnight. Why would they do that? They would only do it if they do not believe that it's going to be there the next day. They're not believing. They're like, look, I haven't seen any food in a while. God provided manna today. He says it's going to be there tomorrow. I don't trust him. I am going to, I'm going to prepare, you know, because I don't trust what God said. And they hold it and it reeks. They disobey God and it reveals something to them. Okay. Now there's more. Let's see what happens next. Let's pick it up in verse 22. On the sixth day... They gathered twice as much bread, two omers each, and when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy day, Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till morning. Okay, wait a minute. So they laid it aside till the morning, as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink. And there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. So for six days, they've been gathering this manna that's just appeared. And they're like, I mean, that would have been crazy. You you walk out, there's this bread on the ground. You're Gathering it up, you you eat it. It's satisfying. It fills you. There's just enough. You the you know several of them that first day. They they not sure the man is showing up the next day, and so they save some over. And it just reeks the next day. They completely regret it. Okay, it's going to come every day. So then they they're gathering it every day. But then they hear that it's it's day six. So it's Friday morning, and day seven. Is, is a Sabbath day, so they're supposed to rest on, on the last day of the week, the seventh day. So Friday morning, they're instructed to, to gather twice as much. And they look, and sure enough, there's twice as much manna. So they all gather, not one omer, but two omers. They're gathering a gallon now for every person in their home. And they're not really sure what's going to happen. They bring it in. They, stay, they go to sleep that night. They're wa- wondering if they're going to wake up and smell that it absolutely reeks. And now it doesn't smell. It's just as fresh as when they had collected it the morning before. Now, look what happens. Verse 27. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See? the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey." I'm so glad, I don't know about you, I am so glad that they actually tell you kind of what manna tasted like, wafers with honey, okay, and they they talk that the substance, it almost was like frost-like when they collected it, and so like, I, it's like kind of like, I, I think of like a flaky wafer, I kind of think of like a, a soft, warm croissant, like a really good one, kind of drizzled with honey, I mean, I'm thinking something like, that's how I picture it, in my brain. Okay, so I love that they tell us what it tasted like. But here's what I want you to see. The second set of instructions, once again, what it says here is that they disobeyed. This time, there are some that are hesitant to leave some till morning. And so obviously, because if they had enough, they wouldn't go out and gather on day seven. They obviously were afraid that if they kept it, and they did what God commanded them, that it would stink up their tent. So they didn't collect double the amount on Friday. They didn't save it overnight. And they walk out on the last day of the week. And what do they find? There's no manna. There's nothing left over. They came back. They disobeyed. The first time they disobeyed, what they got was something rotten and putrid and, and just corrupt and spoiled. The second time they disobeyed, they walk out to get food and they come back empty-handed. They didn't find what they were looking for. See, this is so fascinating about manna. I want to just talk about this whole situation here because the manna is miraculous on so many different ways here. I mean, for starters, let's just talk about it like this. For starters, there's bread on the ground, okay? Like in and of itself... There is bread on the ground and there are different scholars, some biblical scholars, some historical scholars that have tried to describe manna with various natural phenomenon. But no matter how they try and however creative and and sometimes interesting conjecture they have, there is just no explanation for how miraculously this works in, in God's people. I mean, for starters, you've got miraculous bread and it's there every single day. It's not like every now and then they find it. It's there every single day. In fact, look what it says. I want to jump down for a second to verse 35. Look what it says. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years. 40 years till they came to a habitable land, they ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. They, God provided the manna for 40 years, the entire time they wandered through the wilderness until they got to the promised land. They got to the promised land, they eat of the fruit of the promised land, and that was the last, once they ate of the the fruit of the promised land, there was no more need for manna and there was no more manna. They ate every single day. That means, think about this, that means wherever they're at in the Sinai desert, when they go out, there's manna there. He was not blanketing the entire Sinai peninsula with manna. It was just there for them to collect. And it was there every single day, but there's another miracle in that it was there double on Friday and it was there um, and it was not there on Saturday. It was there double on day six every single Friday and it was completely gone on the Sabbath day. And so you you see there's so many different ways that this is a a miracle. Furthermore, the fact that it, it spoils every other night, but does not spoil on Friday night. I mean, that's miraculous. I mean, think about that miracle for a second. That means that God has control over every particle of manna, every molecule of manna. He sees to it that it doesn't spoil on Friday night. That's how granular his control is. He has control over every molecule of the manna. But you can take it even a step further. I mean, check this out. Look at verses 33 and 34 of Exodus 16. Look at this. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. Here's what Moses says to Aaron. This is crazy. He says, okay, uh, Aaron... I want you to take a jar, take one omer, just one person's portion for one day. I want you to put it in that jar. And then I want you to take it and we're going to keep it before the Lord throughout the generations. And you can read about that. This is referenced hundreds of years later in the history. It's still there. They took it and eventually after Sinai, they would build a tabernacle Uh, a tent where they would come to to worship the Lord and make sacrifices. They would keep it in there. They would eventually make the Ark of the Covenant. They would keep it in there. Eventually, it would be put in the temple that Solomon built. This is something they kept through the generations. So here's what this means, that with that particular manna in that jar, God kept that from spoiling for hundreds of years. This manna is so unbelievably miraculous, but what I think how this describes manna, the greatest miracle of all of it is that the manna perfectly satisfies every single person in that entire people group. Hundreds of thousands. That means God has to work that manna to feed whatever the appetite capacity whatever the metabolism is. There are, there are children that are eating it and eventually they grow up to be adults. And for every single person, that manna is perfectly satisfying what they need to be full. It is incredible. And part of what this teaches us is of how God operates as a provider is it helps us realize like how in the details God is. You know, for us, uh, we, we make systems and, and, and mechanisms, and we do that, and it's not a bad thing. It's a great thing. We do that because we're, we're limited, and we're trying to expand our capacity. So let me just give you an example. Uh, my sprinklers have not been working in my yard, and my yard was starting to look like hay, okay? It was like before it started raining the last couple weeks I mean it was looking pretty bad and so I had to do something so um, I, I usually have a system the sprinklers kick on and they water the lawn why is that a great system because I I don't want to have to go out there so every so often and water every single blade of grass so there's a system it runs on its own well that mechanism broke down so I had to go out and I took a hose and I got one of those sprinklers that kind of fans back and forth okay and so now I created a new little system so I took that sprinkler I attach it to the hose and it would water part of the lawn. But I don't want to just stand there and just watch it the whole time. I've got other things to do. So I go back inside my house. I'd set a timer. When the timer went off, I'd move it to another part of the lawn, set a timer, move it to another part of the lawn. That way, because I don't have the mental capacity to remember exactly how long the sprinkler's on and do other things, I'm limited. So I set up a system and the system helps run it for me. So it's just like someone, if you started a tech company, and initially you're starting it, and you take all the customer service calls yourself. Well, eventually... You can't take all of those calls because you've got other things to do, so you hire some customer service representatives, and you train them. They're engineers. They can answer all the questions. Well, eventually, they're overwhelmed, so you build a bigger system. You have a customer service department, and and they have computer screens that they click through. They don't have to be expert engineers. You have a system that can run that so you can expand your capacity. Eventually it's an automated system, and so for most of us when we're calling to get help, we have to click through 17 different screens to get to an actual human if we want to talk to a human, it's a system. Why? Because we to expa- we have limitations to expand our capacity. We build systems and mechanisms. And sometimes I think we look at the order of the world. I mean, God's definitely built systems. And sometimes I wonder. I think we we believe he set up all these systems so that somehow he doesn't have to be in all the details. He has a system because he's got order and brilliance. But the Bible says every single thing is sustained and held together by him. So my grass only grows when it gets sun and water because every single blade of grass is under his control and he's causing it to grow. He's causing the photosynthesis to take place in every cell of every blade of grass. See, as we learn of how miraculous this manna was into the deep, precise detail, realize tremendous provider. Sometimes I I think we, sometimes I I don't think we'd ever say this, but I think sometimes we wonder if, wow, God's got to run this whole universe. I, I just don't know if he has the time to give me you know, his attention, or I, maybe I fall through the cracks, or maybe he's forgotten about me. He's holding your cells together. He's keeping your heart beating right now. He's keeping gravity active in this universe. I mean, he's keeping our planet orbiting. He's, he's keeping the earth's crust together. He's keeping every cell in its place, every electron orbiting a nucleus. I mean, he, he, is, he is far more granular than we can possibly imagine. That, that's what we learn from how he handles this manna. But remember, he's teaching them here about how he's a provider. That's the lesson. He's, before he takes them to the promised land, before he makes they become his covenant people, before he, he, he begins this, sets them up as a nation, he's giving them this lesson in the wilderness, training them that he is their provider. But this is a test for them. And it's revealing their obedience and where their obedience is to his commands. Now, what does their obedience have to do with him teaching them that he's their provider? Well, what this shows us is whether we obey or disobey is directly linked To what we believe about him as a provider. Directly linked. When we disobey God, when we do things our way instead of his way, it reveals that we don't trust him as a provider. And there's one of two ways that we may not trust him as a provider because there are two different ways, or, or sometimes both, there are two different ways that they disobeyed God. The first was he said, you don't need to save manna overnight, it will be there the next day, and they did save it overnight because they didn't trust that he would consistently provide it the next day, and what did they get? They thought, well, I'll save it just in case I have something to eat. What they got was something completely spoiled. See, what they didn't trust in the first lesson is they didn't trust the consistency The daily, constant, perpetual, moment by moment, millisecond by millisecond, holding all your cells together, daily provision, the consistency. They didn't trust the consistency of his provision, so they took matters into their own hands. And their disobedience revealed that they didn't believe in the consistency of his disobedience. And what they got was something that just stunk. It was spoiled. The second disobedience was when he told them to save this time, he says, but on Friday night, I do want you to collect twice, and I want you to save it overnight. The second time, what they didn't trust was they're like, man, but God, if I save this, uh, this double portion overnight, I mean, I, I think it's going to stink. I mean, this is probably going to reek. I mean, it's going to smell like death. See, what they didn't realize is they did not trust the quality of his provision. They didn't trust the quality of it. They thought, surely he's telling me now that I should, I should store up. Two portions. It's going to stink by the next day. The first time they didn't trust the consistency of his provision. The second time they didn't trust the quality of his provision. But look what it says about the quality of his provision. I, I I love how it describes manna. I love that it doesn't say in here. Yeah, so we had manna. Let's see. How do we describe manna? Well, it was hearty. That's not how it's described. You know what? I got to say, what do I say about manna? It kept us alive. I mean, it was nourishing. God could have made it taste however he wanted. Don't you love that how he made it taste was sweet like honey? He gave them dessert all the way through the wilderness. Don't you love that he cared about how it tasted? What did God want for them? He, he wanted to provide sweet manna every day and he wanted to provide them rest the sabbath was for them he wanted to provide rest for them see the quality of his provision he's a good god he provides quality provision that satisfy us deeply but when we take it into our own hands what do we get one of two consequences or both we, we take a good thing and we spoil it or we think we can get it ourselves and we come up empty-handed See, it's teaching us disobedience is just an indicator that I don't trust in God. I mean, don't you think that they should have trusted? I mean, it's his miracle. He's the one that's making it happen. I mean, don't you think he should, they should trust to do it his way? It's, it's God's miracle. You know, that's the story of the whole universe. The universe is his miracle. Don't you think we should trust him and how we run our lives? Every part of it? You know, in seasons like this, when there's uncertainty, we don't know how he's going to provide. In seasons like this, there's the temptation when we start to waver on the consistency of his provision and the quality of his provision, we start to say things like, all right, well, I I just gotta take matters into my own hands. I just got to make this happen. I got to do what I got to do. Like I know like there's all these, you know, I know that there's these things that you should or shouldn't do. I know it's kind of a gray area or I know maybe I probably shouldn't or, you know, technically it would be a sin or, t- you know, it's, it, it's kind of breaking the rules or kind of cutting a corner. But look, in a season like this, I got to do what I got to do. I got I to gotta just make it happen. Disobedience is an indicator that I don't trust something about God's provision. And when I do that, What I'm gonna get is I'm gonna get I'm gonna spoil it or I'm gonna actually come up empty-handed. Here's the first thing. We we what does it look like? Let's let's bring this down into our lives. When I don't trust his the consistency of his provision, it looks like this. So you you imagine it's someone who's like, look. I got i I've got this plans in my life. I want to be successful. And look, if I'm going to be successful in my industry, look, preacher, you don't know how it works in my industry. If you're going to be successful in my industry, you got to cut this corner. You got to fudge these numbers. You got to climb over this person. You got to use some lies every now and then. That's fine. That's how it works in your industry. If you're trusting in yourself to provide, do you want what you can provide or do you want what God can provide? You say, well, look, I mean, he's not showing up right now in my in, in my industry. He's not showing up right now in my job. So, you know, I I, I got to do what I got to do. Trust in the consistency of his provision. How about in relationships? Maybe there's someone that's uh, out there and saying, you know, one day I'd love to get married. And I'm trying to do things, right? I'm trying to handle my my sexuality the way you want me to, God. And I, I know that, you know, uh, my my sexual relationship was supposed to be saved until I'm married. But, you know, look, you're not providing anything anytime soon. I'm not seeing any any things out there. And, and look, I don't see any opportunities to get married. And so, look, I just got to do what I got to do. And if I go and live my life the way you want me to, God, I'm never going to find someone to settle down with. See, when you break God's laws, you're not trusting in the consistency of his provision. He will provide. How about it's when someone has deeply hurt you, there's been an injustice done against you, and you're thinking, look, God, if you're not going to bring me justice, I am going, you know, I'm going to do it. I'm going to have to just bring revenge, and I'm going to have to bite back. I'm going to have to gossip back, slander back. There's no way I'm going to forgive that person. I, I need justice. Trust in God's Provision Trust in his provision, trust that he consistently will provide he hasn 't forgotten about you he hasn 't delayed, his timing is perfect. His provision is exactly what it needs to be in the same way he is actively holding the molecules of your body together. he is actively ordering every single day, whether it looks like it or is not. be obedient and, and make that an expression of trust in the consistency of his provision but also trust in the quality of his provision. You know, sometimes we say things like, um, look, I, I got this dream in my life, okay? And, I, you know, I think it's, it's, you know, I think God's going to use it, but I, I have this dream. I'm going to be successful. I have this dream that God's going to use me, and I'm, I'm going to use this in my life. And so, man, like I, I got to, I know that God's going to bless it, and I'm asking God to bless my dream, but, you know, hey, every now and then, look, if God, if you're not going to help me make this dream a reality, then I got to, I got to jump in and do what I'm going to do. It's because I would only say that if I don't trust the quality of his provision, do I believe he can't bring me good things? Now, I was thinking about this, this um, scene from this movie, and I'm, I'm going to be honest. I'm taking a risk here telling you this because I'm not proud that I'm going to reference this movie. And I, I just ask, it's, it's quarantine, okay? I have to remember I'm quarantined with a six-year-old, a five-year-old, and a one-year-old, okay? There's the scene in the movie Tangled from 2010 about Rapunzel. By Disney. Okay, there's a scene in the movie Tangled, where Rapunzel has come out of her tower, and they take, and, and Flynn Rider takes her to this pub, and inside this little pub is like all of like the most fearsome, grisly, nasty, villainous. A mean-looking people. And Rapunzel's the first time she's ever been out of her tower, and and she just innocently, naively says, well, look, I, I know that I, I'm here, but I am I, I have this dream of seeing these floating lanterns. And in what, what I think is one of the funniest songs that Disney's ever produced, there's this song called, I Have a Dream. And, and one at a time, you realize that each one of these menacing, grotesque, grisly characters in this pub each have their own dream. And one of them says, I have a dream of being a concert piano player. I have a dream of becoming a mime. This guy over here, he sews. This guy bakes. Okay, and it's not at all the dreams you would expect. And right as at the end of the song, they're about to escape, and Flynn Rider and Rapunzel are going through this trap door, and the menacing character says, go live your dream. And Flynn Rider says, oh, thanks. He says, no, no, I was talking to Rapunzel. Your dream stinks. Your dream's not good at all. It's one of my favorite lines in the movie. And sometimes I wonder when we talk about our dream, oh, I've got this dream, I'm, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna be successful, and, and then here's what we do. We ask God, we have our own dream, and then we ask God to bless it. And we assume God's gonna bless our dream. We say, God, I've got this dream, I've got this whole thing mapped out for my life, and I'm assuming you're gonna bless it. And the problem with that is when things don't go according to our dream that we're asking God to help with, then we take matters into our own hands because clearly God's not doing his job well, wait, wait, what are you saying? I'm, so, I'm, not, I'm just trying to be true to myself, be true to my dream. You know what I wonder if sometimes what God's saying when he looks at our dreams? Your dream stinks. You're like, whoa, that's not super encouraging. I was looking to be motivated here. Well, let me, let me tell you what I mean by that. I think God looks at our dreams and he says, man, they're small. I think he says, how about you just surrender to the mysterious dream I have for your life. You say, man, that's a little bit of a risk. Really? Is it though? Because the one who every single night, day after day, for thousands of years, he de- every night and every morning, he paints the sky with a sunrise and a sunset, which dazzles the minds of billions of people. Every single day, that kind of creator is saying, let me author your story. How about you just hand it over to me, the one who invented the universe. How about you trust him with your dream?" How about you say, hey, you provide the dream for my life. How about we surrender our small dreams and say, God, you've got a dream. You haven't even revealed all of it to me. I am just going to trust the quality of your provision. You have a plan for my life, and I am just going to be obedient for today. No matter how desperate you are, for God to provide, it's not going to to require your disobedience stay obedient to God's plan and trust that he will provide. No matter how desperate you get, wait for him to provide. Trust him as the provider and take a step. Follow his plan. You know, you might be here and you might be saying, um, look, all this talk about obedience, man, I gotta be honest, I don't think God wants to provide for me at all. Talk about obedience, man. I've blown it. And I, I think God's a thousand miles away from me. I mean, you should see, you know, or maybe you're saying, look, I just hope that a lot of what you said, I mean, I know that I've messed up. I know I've messed up at work or in relationships or whatever. I, I just hope in the end I've done enough good, enough good works to outweigh the bad. You know, it's interesting as we're just wrapping up um, this whole discussion about uh, Sabbath, um, What's interesting is the way that the Sabbath worked is they would work for six days and then on Saturday, the last day of the week, they would rest. So they'd work, 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 and then then they rest on uh, the seventh day. What's interesting is in the New Testament, Jesus rose again from the dead on the first day of the week. He rose again from the dead on a Sunday. And from that moment on, kind of the special day for God's people, for Christians, shifted to Sunday. So the first day of the week is traditionally when our Sabbath is, when we we rest and when we worship, traditionally. But think of that that shift. I think it represents the whole shift in, in a covenant. I think it speaks to the gospel. I mean... How we're programmed is I've got to work, 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 work. I've got to do enough good. I've got to try hard enough. I've got to be religious enough so that one day I achieve God's favor. I achieve God's happiness. I achieve God's blessing. I achieve heaven. But it's the opposite. With Jesus' death and resurrection, we start with a place of rest. We start with the fact that Jesus died and paid for my sins I rest in the fact that because of what Jesus did, I have eternity. I rest first in the fact that because of what Jesus did, I'm a child of God. I rest the fact that because of what Jesus did, He will provide. I rest in the fact because of what Jesus did, His promises are true. Because of what Jesus did, I rest in the fact that He's my Father. I, I rest in the fact that there's nothing left to earn. And I start from a place of rest, Sabbath rest, because of what Jesus did when He rose again from the dead. And then out of that, I get to work and obey him out of a place of rest because I want what he wants. See, all they could imagine, oh, I just wish I could get back to Egypt. And he's like, oh, you just got to trust me. Yeah, I'm taking you through the wilderness, but there's a promised land at the other end. And I'm going to provide along the way in a way you could have never imagined. Rest that he loves you and he saved you and he calls you his child because of Jesus and walk in his ways. Maybe today you've been thinking all this time that we do church services because we're trying to make you more religious. No, we're not trying to make you do... It's not about that. You can't earn anything. You just rest in what Jesus did for you. He died on the cross to pay for your sins. The Son of God died on the cross to pay for your sins and rose again saying it's completely paid for. Put your faith in, it's not what you do, it's what Jesus did. Put your faith in what Jesus did. You need a Savior. I need a Savior. Make Him your Savior and then surrender your life to Him. Maybe some of you need to take that step right now. I don't know where you're at. You might be somewhere here in our city. You may be somewhere around the country. You may be in another country around the world. You you may be sitting on on a couch. You may be watching on your phone, on a computer, watching with some friends, watching with your family, all by yourself, wherever you're at. Maybe Jesus is saying, let me be your Savior and let me make the greatest provision for you. Just let me provide your salvation. Receive that gift. Would you do that now? Let your life be transformed. You say, how do I receive that gift? Let me just lead you in a prayer. And at that point, your eternity can be sealed. You will be saved and forgiven permanently let me lead you in that prayer just bow your heads right where you're at and if you want to take that step pray this prayer say Lord Jesus I need a savior I know that I can't earn heaven I fall short I can't be good enough thank you for dying on the cross taking my punishment so that I could be forgiven I believe you rose again from the dead and that I am a child of God because of what you did, Jesus. You're my Savior and you're my Lord. I surrender to you. In Jesus' name, Amen. Hey, if you took that step, just then, here's what I want to encourage you to do. We want to know about it. It's not that's not a it's a very very personal step, but it's not a, a private thing, and we want you to let us know so we can just we can respond to you. We can follow up with you. We'd love to send you a Bible. So here's what I want you to do. Right there on your screen, there's a place that you can check that uh, says, that, yeah, that was me. I put my faith in Jesus. Just click that right on the screen. Let us celebrate with you. You'll see in the, the comments, there's, there's cityrev.org faith. You can just click on that link. There's a short form and you just take a moment, fill that out so that we can get you a Bible and you can continue on this journey relying on your provider. Would you take a second and do that right now? We would love to just walk alongside you on this journey. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.